0: You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. Turn your attention to the book of John, chapter 1, and we've spent a good amount of time on these first words. It says, and the word became flesh. And we've stopped there, we've parked there, we've we've given emphasis to this because this is a great time to develop this deep scriptural truth, that God became a man. I want you guys to always think about that. Jesus Christ was God, Jesus Christ was God in, in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to become a human being. And the question is, why? And that is what we've been discussing for the past several months, uh, weeks now, and and it's been in, in our heart to really understand this truth, because Jesus Christ is our Savior, and it must be understood the context of his salvation. How did Jesus live as God and live as a human being here on earth? One of the first things we discussed about this verse was the concept of restoration, Our first emphasis, we have four emphases that we've been discussing or that we're about to discuss on, on this very subject and answering the question, why did God have to become a man or a human being? And the first reason we discussed was this concept of God had to become a human being in order to restore our image. You have to always think about that, that there was a plan on his humanity to bring us back to the image of our original intention. You understand this completely because everything that's designed in this world has a purpose. You you have a 65-inch LED or OHD or whatever they're called now, and and it's hanging on your wall, and and you have a surround system, and and the purpose of that is, is easy. You put a couch in front of the television, And at the end of the service today, you're probably going to watch the Patriots game or you're probably going to watch the Bears game and you're going to sit down with a surround and what are you going to do? You're going to enjoy the television. Why? Because it was designed for entertainment. You don't go to Best Buy and buy a 65-inch LED screen and then go to your garage and then like use it as a punching bag because that's not its purpose. That's not its design. That's not what it was created for. So in a sense, our created image has been distorted. Distorted how? By the concept of sin. It's been damaged. It's been destroyed. It's functioning incorrectly and has been functioning incorrectly for a very long time. So what does Jesus have to do? What does the Son of Man have to do? He has to come down in the form of a human being to teach us what it means to live as a human being again. So the purpose number one in God becoming a man is to bring us to a restoration of that image. And we read in Psalm chapter 8 what that image looked like. The, 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 Psalm, the Psalter says in, in Psalm chapter 8 that we were made a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. We created for dominion over this world. We were created to exercise authority. We were created as vice regents of God. But this negative concept of sin crept in and tainted us and destroyed that image. And ever since, all of us have been living under that tainted curse until one day Jesus came as God and initiated this process of restoration. So believe me when I say that the word of God functions to bring you back to your purpose. So if you're married today, you can rest assured that God is going to complete his plan in your wife. God is going to complete his plan in your husband. God will restore them. If you're married with children, God will restore your children in the image of God. And a lot of the parents will say, thank you, Father. Thank you, amen. I'm praying for that restoration for our kids. But that's purpose number one. We have three more to talk about. Last week, we began to talk about this concept or this other reason why God had to become man. And if you're taking down notes, you can remember what that reason was. And that reason we found was in that he brought many sons to glory. He was bringing sons and daughters back to glory. And how have we been discovering these truths? Is it something that I fabricated or made up? Is it something that's in my mind? One of the main ways we've been doing this is by looking at the Bible to interpret the Bible, and we've been gathering these truths off the book of Hebrews. So now I want you to open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews has helped us understand this concept at a deeper level. The book of Hebrews in chapter 2, we've been reading from verses 5 and on, and in the book of Hebrews, we read in verse 10, if you, if you can follow me there in chapter 2, verse 10, where it's stated, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In this, we see in verse 10 that he brings many sons to glory. Now, like we stated last week, this is just a summary of what we emphasized last week. Last week, we we focused on that the glory that we were brought back into was not a place. It's not a location. Rather, it was our salvation. And that is why like last week we spoke a little bit on the suffering of Christ and why God had to suffer in the in the in the form of a man. He had to suffer for us, take on our sin, but he did this to bring us to salvation. You and I needed to be saved. If you and I are not saved, our greatest need in this world is salvation. Sin is detriment to our society and a detriment to our humanity. If we live in sin, we will ultimately die in sin and go to the place where sin has destined us to go to. However, because we have a founder, if you remember what we spoke about last week, we have an archaigone, we have a king that is before us making a way for us and bringing us to salvation. We can Follow him and be saved from the effects of sin in this world. There's a lot of us that struggle with addiction. There's a lot of us that struggle with sin. There's a lot of us that struggle with with the chain of sin over our lives, and it can't be broken on our own strength. That's one of the greatest lies of of even our 21st century religion and and, and our cults that that call us to our self-gratification and our self-sustainment. We cannot save ourselves. We have nothing to offer. We can't break the bondage of sin. We are tainted by sin and within ourselves there is no power to break away from it. We need a leader. We need a savior. And that savior is in Jesus Christ. So he is our king. And we're going to finish this second reason today and jump into the third one. So to bring more emphasis on this, I want to bring your attention back to verse 10. And I want to read it with you carefully. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. And once again, we've been using the book of Hebrews because it's the greatest, one of the greatest books in the New Testament that emphasize the the, the person and the supremacy of Christ. And here we see in verse 10 for it was fitting, it was perfect, it was good. Remember that. For him by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So here we have a source, we have a fountain of salvation and that source and fountain was made perfect for us through suffering in order to bring us to glory. This leader, this pioneer, this king is leading the way to salvation. That's the gospel in a nutshell. There is a need for salvation. Why do people come to church? Because it smells good, because it has good coffee, because the music's good, because it makes you feel good. No, the reason why people come to church, it's because they've understood one major issue. I'm here because I need a savior. And my whole purpose in life is to bring worship to the one who has saved my soul from death. So I come here following a leader. I come here following a pioneer that has made a way just like the God of Israel. So if we do a little bit of biblical theology here, we understand that in Israel... There is this story, and you have, you, you've probably tried to read the Bible in one year, and in January, that's going to be like at the top of everyone's list, right? I'm going to read the whole Bible this year, 2020, this is my year. New year, new me. I'm going to read the Bible, blah, 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 that whole same old, same old. And you'll probably get stuck around Leviticus. I don't want to prophesy that over you, and that's not a prophecy in a sense. But when, once you get to Leviticus, you're just like, man, you know what? I'm just going to give up. But you've read at least... The book of Genesis and the creation aspect and wow, the glorious creation story. You've read about Noah, you've read about Abraham, and you're kind of like in awe. And the book of Genesis ends on this wonderful story of this guy who was was thrown into slavery and then was thrown in jail and then came up to the palace ranks of of Egypt and his name was Joseph. And then Joseph is one of the, the greatest leaders of Egypt and he saves his people his brothers, and we get this wonderful story about Joseph and facing the brothers that sold him into slavery. And and, and there's this reconciliation that goes on in Genesis. But then after that, in the book of Exodus, we have a new leader in Egypt that doesn't know Joseph, that doesn't know God's people. And what ends up happening to the people of Israel, God's chosen people from Abraham? What happens to the family of Joseph? They become enslaved. They become taken over, and now Egypt has enslaved people. Once uh, they were uh, having the benefits and the bounty and the glory of Egypt with them, with all their resources, are now enslaved to a slave master. Now they are whipped. Now they are made to work and toil day and night for hours and hours and hours, living once in a land of plenty. Now they are just denigrated to be slaves. Their women, slaves. Their children, slaves. They grew up with a slave mentality. They were dragged out in chains. They were tied. They were beaten. They were treated as dung. The word of God teaches us in Exodus. Yet, God provides a way out. How does God do that? He he speaks through a burning bush. And I know you're kind of like, is that really true? I mean, burning bush, how does that happen? That's the word of God, bro. If you don't believe that, we could talk later and we could, a little, we could discuss it a little bit more. And I understand that in our 21st century, that's a little bit hard to believe. However, God speaks in a burning bush. And he speaks to this guy, a nobody in a sense, named Moses, who was living in an Egyptian palace at that time. And God speaks to him because of his placement. And he says, you will be the leader Of my people. You will make a way for them. I will be in you. I will speak through you. I will prove my case through you. And you will lead the people away from the bonds of slavery. And what happens? You all know the story. Moses is kind of afraid, like, really, I can't really do that. I'm not fit for that position. That's not me. Why don't you choose him? I'm not able to do what you want me to do. And God says, don't worry. I am with you. I will speak for you, and I will show miraculous signs before everyone so they can believe that I am with you. And what does Moses do? He says, All right, got it. Well, if you're gonna do it, let's do it. And we begin that beautiful story of the Exodus, right? the Exodus gets underway and Moses begins to lead his people and one of the greatest movies that we've seen or that come from the Exodus period is this moment in time where the the plagues of Israel begin to plague and and Pharaoh begins to break down and and, and we get this tug of war happening where where he lets the people go but then he's like, no, no, I want them back and then he lets them go and no, no, I want them back until finally God brings the ultimate sign on, on, on Pharaoh hardens his heart so much so that that he cannot set, have the sense to release the people of God and so they chase after them and then we get this wonderful scene in the bible where where Israel is running away from Egypt because Moses said God is with us and God is going to free us and God is walking before us but then they're confronted by this this huge Piece of water before them. It's a, it's a river, it's a sea that stands before them and their freedom, and now they're just kind of giving up. Like, what are we going to do at this juncture in our life? Why did God take us away just so that we could die out here? And, and then God does what? For all of you that went to Sunday school it, when you were kids, what does God do? The waters rise to the right, and the waters rise to the left. And then, and then Moses and, and Israel are able to walk across dry land. They get to the other side, and then if you were like, if you were like me as a kid, we loved, we loved it when the waters came down on the enemies and drowned the horses and the chariots, and all the bad guys died and drowned in the water. But in a sense, God freed his people. He delivered his people. He used a leader to walk his people through the desert into freedom. Now, they didn't live in freedom for much longer, but you get the sense that the glory of God was over his people and making a way. For his people. The story goes on when they when they follow the glory cloud during, during the, the day and the pillar of fire at night, and they're always mm-hmm. governed by the people, and then we get this wonderful story of the tabernacle, and God indwells the tabernacle to live amongst his people, and then he teaches them in the book of Leviticus. If you guys ever get to the book of Leviticus, read it. Because it's a detailed description on how you're supposed to live before God. The people of Israel were instructed on how to live correctly before God. And it's just a wonderful way that God is providing himself for his people. He's there with them. In the same sense, we have this concept of a pioneer, the archagon that we've read from the book of Hebrews, Who is not like Moses? Who is better than Moses? In the book of Exodus, God brings these people out of slavery and he says in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God and you will be my people and I will break the yoke of Egypt over you. The purpose of this freedom from the Egyptians, was that the people were going to live f- in freedom, but what? They were going to be the people of God. God says, I'm not going to just liberate you. The, the story isn't, it doesn't go as follows. You're free. I saved you. Be free. You are no longer slaves. Be free. There's a condition. There's a, a, a quality that goes and on top, of that slave, uh, on top of that freedom that says, you are free, but you are mine. You are free, but you're not free to wander and do as you please. You are free to worship me. You can say, well, man, God, that's a little bit egocentric. Well, who's the one that saved them? Who's the one that delivered them? Who's the one that broke the chains of slavery over them? Was it Moses? It was God. So God says, I'm freeing you because I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. And I can prove to you, God is saying in the sense, I can prove to you how I can be your God. Man, if, if we were to see that today, we'd be like, oh. We'd be amazed. We'd be awestruck. We'd be like, yes, God, we'll follow you whatever we, in, in whatever way you want us to do because you have proved to, to be that Savior. And God did that for these people, for their possession. But now in Jesus Christ, we are experiencing a new exodus. This is the original Exodus from the Old Testament. But now, with a new leader, a new pioneer, a new king, we are experiencing a new Exodus. And this Exodus gets accomplished through death and resurrection. And this Exodus gets accomplished through a better leader than Moses. Look at, look at what the book of Hebrews says. If you're in Hebrews, look at chapter 3. The first verse is in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as, as Who? just as moses also was faithful in all god's, in all of god's house for jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than than moses as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself what is the book of and the writer of hebrews saying jesus is greater than Moses. There is a greater leader here. There is a greater perspective. If Moses was able to lead by by the calling of God in his life, Jesus deserves more glory because he is the builder of the house. It isn't the house that deserves the glory. It is the builder of the house. Jesus Christ being eternal, is the leader and builder of this house, and he is making a way out of slavery and death. Friends, we have been delivered from slavery and death. This new exodus occurs in us. I want you to remember what we do once a month. At the beginning of every month, we have Communion Sunday. Communion Sunday helps us not only understand how we are to live before God now and how we are to to proclaim his coming back. But it reminds us that God has saved us from our slavery. We are all slaves. Or we were all once slaves. And now we have been rescued by the resurrection, that by the death and resurrection of Christ. Moses didn't die for anybody. Moses was just obedient to God. But Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, the better Moses, the better king, the better pioneer, made a way and delivered us from our slavery. You and I were slaves, man. We, we have a picture of slavery in Egypt with, 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 with the people of Israel living under bondage. But you and I know what it means to be a slave. And you can say like, no, well, not really. I mean, we're, we're kind of free here. I'm not talking about physical slavery. I'm talking about that slavery that exists, that you know exists deep down in your soul man, it goes so simple and it's so superficial sometimes that we are slaves to our own social media accounts. We are slaves to our our own desire to see, to, to the pleasure of our eyes. There's a lot of us that are still enslaved to our sin and don't know how to break free from it. Well, let me remind you that we have a greater redeemer in Jesus Christ, that his whole purpose in life was to bring many sons to glory. And he did this. This is the most impressive aspect of this. He did it by suffering. We talked about this last week. I want you to read what the book of, of Isaiah says. Go, go with me to the Old Testament now. I want to keep you going back and forth in Scripture. I love the way the, when you turn your pages in Scripture, I love the way that sounds. It lets me know you're awake at least. (laughs) Look at what the writer of Isaiah, well, actually Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53, one of the greatest uh, chapters in Isaiah, but we'll start off from verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Did you read that? Verse 10, Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's what I want. I wish I could read the whole chapter, but I want you to focus on that. The plan of God in our redemption was to restore our image back to God, but also to bring us to glory, to bring us to salvation. And the way he did it was through Jesus Christ. And we can all say amen to that, but the way in which that happened was Jesus Christ had to suffer. What did he suffer? He suffered the crushing blows of his heavenly father. Jesus Christ was crushed by his father. I don't want you to miss that. I don't want you to think that it was just Rome and the Jews who hung Christ on that cross. I want you to remember that it was a divine plan that placed him there. He was crushed. He was put to grief. And his soul made an offering for guilt. But this is where it gets amazing. Out of his anguish, says verse 11, We will be given righteousness. We will be accounted righteousness because of his righteousness. And what is he going to do? He's going to bear his, our iniquities upon him. The way he was crushed was because he bore our faults. Our sins, our suffering of sin, that addiction that you and I can't let go of, that sin that is so hard in our life, that that, that has lived there, that has abided in us, that concept of sin, the gravity of sin that leads to death, that was put upon Christ. And it was in that crushing blow that you and I are accounted righteous before God. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther of the 16th century, he he lived an entire life of, 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 uh, of suffering physical pain in order to please God. He would pray eight hours a day. He would sleep in a cold prison naked just to feel the cold on his body so that his body can suffer because he said that he could not be at that much holier before God. Martin Luther was afraid of God and didn't understand how to be made righteous before God. So he would pray. He would fast so many days, he would almost go down to the point of death because he was so afraid that he could not appease the wrath of God until Martin Luther realized what Isaiah said, what Habakkuk says, and what Romans says, that the just shall live by faith. We have faith in Christ whom imputed, who gave us his righteousness. Bro, things that you and I could never accomplish. You know, even you look at me. Oh, he's a pastor. No, I, even me, bro. I could never do that. You could never do that. But it was a placed upon him, and that is why he was crushed, because it destroyed the bondage of our sin. The chains of our sin have been broken, because Christ suffered and was crushed for us by carrying those iniquities upon him. He suffered to unite the community of God. Look at what verse 11 says. Now go back to Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. See, he's bringing the unification of the body. He's bringing the community of God in unity by being the sanctifier and by being the one involved with all the sanctified ones. You and I have been sanctified. That's why we said at the beginning, you are part of the saints. Sometimes it's a funny expression to call us the saints of God. Let the saints of God arise and sing. Sometimes it sounds funny for us to be like, saints, isn't that, isn't just St. Paul and St. John and St. Andrew and St. Aren't those guys saints? Bro, you're a saint. I know it's hard to believe. I know it's a little bit like, Ugh. You go home and you tell your mom, hey, the pastor called me a saint. She's going to be like, he doesn't know you. Now tell him to come to the house and see if he's gonna call you a saint after he comes to your house. God, in his righteousness that he has given you, calls you saints because he is sanctifying you. He is the sanctifier. You understand what that means? He is the purifier. Verse 11 says, the sanctified one. The one who sanctifies, he's the holy one, and he's the one that's accomplishing sanctification in your life. He is the one that is purifying you, and he is the only one that can purify you. There is a process of sanctification. We'll get to that later on in our study. But he's the initiator of that sanctification, but he's with you in your sanctification. You are being sanctified. I understand that we've all said, I'm in the process. Uh uh, give have some time. There's patience involved in this, right? We want to see you you start coming to church and people want to see an immediate change. You start coming to church and, and start, you, you've been in church for about a month, and people are like, well, I don't see any difference in you. You you're exactly the same, man. You you still swear, you still curse, you still, you still steal, you still haven't paid me my money. You and it's like, bro, hold down, bro. Like, I'm, I'm, God's working in me. Now, after a year, you still haven't paid your brother back, then, you know, something's going on here. But the thing is, you're being sanctified. You're not going to be perfect now. That's why there's this patience involved in the community of Christ. That's why we're called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to bear one, bear with one another. And what else are we called to do? We're called to love one another, because it's very hard to love someone who isn't sanctified like you, right? It's very hard to love somebody that isn't at your level. Like, man, you should be like where I'm at, bro. God says, you gotta love that person. You gotta sacrifice. You have to be patient. There is a level of patience, though. Paul says it himself. Some of you wanna keep drinking milk when you should be eating meat. So there is this level and this concept but we're not perfect instantaneously but we've been sanctified and this process is a process that god walks alongside of us to sanctify us it has something to do with you and it has something to do with him we'll get into that later on not today but later on as we keep studying scripture that's why he calls us brothers or sisters which is another it's a general term for family in verse 11 he is the source of this sanctification and the source of this life in verse 11. This is all from verse 11. And those brothers and sisters, of the family that he considers, this is important. In verse 11, I mean verse 12, he repeats a... He quotes from another passage, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And then in verse 13 he says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. He is quoting from scripture, labeling that those whom he is sanctifying those whom he is working on, those whom he has saved and redeemed have been given to him by the Father. So in a sense, what I really want you to, to, to perceive here, this is what I want you to get, that you are a gift from God to Christ. Those who he saved, those whom he's sanctifying, could not be involved in Christ if God didn't give it to him. And so you can consider yourself a gift, a ransom. The reason why he was crushed was for you. That humbles us. That tells us... uh, I, I, I'm not perfect, I'm not, I can't live a perfect life, I, I'm nobody, I mean, sometimes we have such a bad impression of our own selves, we're just like, we're just bad people, I'm a bad person, I can't come to church, no way, God's gonna burn me down as soon as I walk in, I can't come from that, no, but bro, you're a gift, bro, you're a gift to God, and he is sanctifying you, because he loves you. God loves, I mean, Christ loves the gifts that his father has given him. That's why he endured his trials. That's why he carried our sin. And that's why he ultimately atoned for our sin. The point of death. In Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to talk about this point a lot more. We're going to go in depth, so I invite you to start preparing yourself to invite people for Easter Sunday, because we're going to talk about the death of Christ. So the first two points that we've studied, the first point, why did God become a man? Point number one, to restore our image. Point number two, to bring many sons to glory. Point number three, I'm just going to introduce, because the clock says three minutes, So I'll introduce it to you right now. Point number three is to destroy the power of death and the devil. Why did God become man? To destroy the power of death and the devil. And why do we say this in verse... Look back to chapter 2, verse 14. We'll read a little bit here. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... was to destroy the power of death and the devil. And you're going to say, well, how does he do that? How did he accomplish that? Because people still die physically. What does this mean, the destruction of death? And so next week, we're going to dive into that. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to dive into it even more. But I want to leave it there before I start rambling on for another 20 minutes and and it's just, it's not going to be good. So I'd rather stop right here and keep that in mind. So next week, we're going to discuss this very issue. Point number three, Jesus, I mean, God became a man to destroy death and the devil. Let's stand up this morning.